More classified documents have been found from President Biden's time as vice president, this time at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. Biden says he is cooperating with the Justice Department review. Our story is coming up. It is Thursday, January 12th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, NATO countries have sent sophisticated Western-made weapons to Ukraine as the war with Russia approaches the one-year mark. Some are pushing to send advanced to main battle tanks. The housing market is pretty competitive right now, and rental application fees can add up to hundreds of dollars. We've heard reports for people applying for up to 10 or 12 units or more in order to secure their one place to live. And MIT Technology Review has released its annual list of breakthrough technologies. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Justice Department is appointing a special counsel to further investigate two batches of classified documents that have been found in the possession of President Biden. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. Attorney General Merrick Garland says he's appointing Robert Hur, a veteran prosecutor who worked in the Trump administration, to investigate how the classified documents from Biden's time as vice president ended up at his home and private office. This appointment underscores for the public the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters and to making decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. President Biden has pledged his full cooperation with the Justice Department's review. The White House has not addressed questions as to why the initial discovery was not disclosed back in November, just before the election. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Justice Department has announced its largest ever settlement against a bank accused of modern-day redlining. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports City National Bank is accused of unlawfully limiting its mortgage services in majority black and Latino areas of Los Angeles County. The complaint covers 2017 to 2020 and alleges that City National discouraged residents in minority areas from obtaining mortgage loans. It also says the bank only opened one branch in a majority black and Hispanic neighborhood in the past 20 years. And unlike at its other branches, the bank did not assign an employee there to generate mortgage loan applications. Under the proposed settlement, City National will invest nearly $30 million in a loan subsidy fund in L.A. County and assign at least four dedicated mortgage loan officers. The racial home ownership gap in the U.S. is greater now than it was in the 1960s and is a major factor in overall wealth inequality. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News. Annual inflation eased last month to its lowest level in more than a year. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on a new cost-of-living index from the Labor Department. Consumer prices in December were up 6.5% from a year ago. That's a smaller annual increase than the month before and a significant drop from last summer when inflation hit a four-decade high of just over 9%. The price index actually declined slightly between November and December thanks to a big drop in gasoline prices. President Biden says while inflation's still too high, it's moving in the right direction. It all adds up to a real break for consumers, real breathing room for families, and more proof that my economic plan is working. Inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve are not ready to declare victory just yet. The Fed's expected to boost interest rates again early next month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Just before the close, the Dow is up 216 points, the S&P up 13. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is criticizing House Republicans who voted to establish a legislative committee to address the U.S. competition with China. One of the committee's goals is to bring jobs back from China to the U.S., but Presley told CNN today she thinks the move could cause harm to Asian Americans. This is just a committee that would further embolden uh, anti-Asian rhetoric and hate and put lives at risk. We have enough infrastructure and governance uh, to tackle those issues that we don't need the select committee, and that is why I voted no. The House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed legislation Tuesday to create the committee. Tomorrow, a new memorial to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King opens on the Boston Common. It's a two-story tall bronze sculpture called The Embrace. WBR's Rupa Shinoy has more. The sculpture symbolizes the couple embracing. The kings met in Boston, and the common was the site of their first date. The memorial includes the names of 65 other people who fought for racial equity in Boston. Amari Paris Jeffries is executive director of the group that oversaw the sculpture's creation and installation. 45% of the leaders acknowledged here are women. There are three people who are indigenous, five folks who identify as Asian, two folks who identify as Jewish, one person who is white who is not identified as Jewish. So it is a a diverse story of Boston. QR codes around the embrace lead to more information about the struggle for racial equity in Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Plans for a new observatory in Boston's Prudential Tower are coming into focus. They include an open-air deck wrapped around the top of the building. The company managing the development released details on the design today. It says visitors on the deck will be able to have their picture taken by a high-powered camera perched atop a neighboring skyscraper. More plans for the space include a cocktail lounge and exhibits on Boston's neighborhoods. The new observatory called View Boston will open later this year. And Emerson College is getting a new president. Today, the school named Jay Bernhardt its new leader. He's currently the dean of the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. The chair of Emerson's Board of Trustees calls Bernhardt a transformational leader with a record of innovation in communications and the arts. He will succeed interim president William Gilligan. Emerson's previous president, Lee Pelton, left in 2021 to lead the Boston Foundation. 41 degrees now in the Boston area, wet and windy this afternoon, this evening, and overnight tonight, too, as showers continue off and on. Tomorrow, we should see a hike in temperatures, and starting overnight tonight, in fact, about 50 degrees by 5 a.m., Tomorrow should reach the mid-50s, starting up with showers, lots of clouds. 41 degrees now in Boston at 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to investigate President Biden's handling of classified documents. The documents are from the time that he was serving as vice president, and a small number of them were recently found in one of his offices and at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. But under the regulations, the extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter. 
This is the second special counsel Garland has appointed to look at the handling of these kinds of documents. The first is investigating former President Donald Trump for his activities around January 6th, and also because hundreds of classified documents were found in Trump's home in Florida. White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins me now. Tam, why did Merrick Garland say that a special counsel was needed here? Some of the documents were first discovered in early November, and by the middle of that month, Garland had already asked a prosecutor to conduct an initial investigation. He said today that that prosecutor ultimately told him that he thought a special counsel was warranted. The special counsel operates independently of day-to-day oversight from the Justice Department, and part of the goal with that special counsel law is to avoid even the appearance of interference. Um, And given that President Biden is the president and he's likely running for re-election. This is exactly the kind of case the special counsel is designed for. Uh, The newly appointed special counsel is named Robert Herr, a career prosecutor who was appointed to his two most recent positions by former President Trump. And he said he will investigate fairly and quickly. Now, Attorney General Garland has laid out a very detailed timeline of how this whole investigation has unfolded thus far. What did you learn from that? And how does it compare to what you've heard from the White House? I think the best way to describe the way the White House has been sharing information about this issue is incomplete. Biden on Tuesday talked about documents that were found in an office maintained in Washington, D.C. after he was vice president. But he didn't say anything about additional documents we learned today were found in his home in a a garage in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, Today, Garland said that the bulk of those documents were actually found on December 20th. um, And one last one was turned over this morning. The White House has not explained why there was such a big, big gap in the public disclosure of the situation. And what about the president himself? What has he had to say about this? He spoke to reporters this morning before Garland's announcement, and he did answer a question about the additional documents that were found. He said he and his team are fully cooperating, and he emphasized uh, that as soon as the documents were found, they were turned over to the National Archives and the Justice Department. And that is in stark contrast contrast to former President Trump, who refused to give back documents. He had his lawyers certify falsely that he didn't have any more. And in fact, he still had hundreds of them, which was revealed through a search warrant. Um, but Biden was also a little bit defensive about the suggestion that he was keeping classified documents next to his Corvette in the garage. My Corvette's in a locked garage. OK, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. After Garland's announcement, White House counsel Richard Sauber put out a statement saying that they are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents were inadvertently misplaced. Okay, so what happened here sounds quite different from former President Trump's mishandling of classified documents. But, Tam, like always, there is a big political question here. Oh, there is. Uh, It just creates a lot of room for questions. Congressional Republicans are making hay of this and saying that they will investigate Biden's mishandling of classified documents. Um, They will be asking who had access to his garage and the other areas where the documents were stored and and why this was kept from the public until after the midterms. Um, You know, they were already planning to investigate President Biden. Uh, Now they've got another scandal that they can stoke. NPR's Tamara Keith, thank you. You're welcome. Let's consider the case that perhaps the way forward for the war in Ukraine is more, 
more weapons, more money funneled by the U.S. and its allies to Ukraine's forces trying to kick Russia out of their country. Two giants of the national security establishment are making that case. In the Washington Post, the piece by former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates is headlined, Time is Not on Ukraine's Side. And Condoleezza Rice joins us now from her office at Stanford University. Secretary Rice, welcome. Thank you. So make the case, in a war that has already caused so many casualties, so much suffering, why do you believe the way forward is something that that sounds an awful lot like escalation? Well, the uh, escalation of this war is uh, Vladimir Putin's escalation. He continues to use essentially terrorist tactics against the Ukrainian population with the bombing of civilian targets, the infrastructure, the grid. But the fact is, the Ukrainians are fighting, and they're fighting hard, and they're fighting effectively. And we've never done very well when we stood by and waited for the war to come to us. And so our argument, Rob Gates and and my argument, is simply let's have a sense of urgency about getting everything to the Ukrainians that they need to fight this war on the behalf of people who believe that the international system cannot allow an aggressor to win who simply intended to extinguish its smaller neighbor. Why not, the basic question, but why not try to negotiate a ceasefire? Why isn't that the path forward? Well, first of all, uh, that's going to have to be, and the Biden administration has been absolutely right about this, that's going to have to be a Ukrainian decision. After all that they've suffered, after the war crimes that have been committed, after the destruction of their country, to tell them now, negotiate now, I think would not be morally uh, acceptable. Uh, There will eventually be a ceasefire and a negotiation. Our job as Ukraine's uh, partner in this is to simply help them be in the very best position possible when that negotiation takes place. And that, unfortunately, is not right now. Vladimir Putin, and we're seeing uh, what is going on around Flaret, what they, the Russians seem to be intent on doing is trying to at least secure uh, territory in uh, Donetsk, uh, maybe in Luhansk. Because Putin set off, he, he cut off his own off-ramp, uh, Mary Louise, when he uh, decided to annex that territory, when he decided to call it Russia, uh, he now will not negotiate what he has called Russian territory. And so we have to be prepared for the fact that this will probably go on. It may go on for some time. But we have to leave the Ukrainians or help them to leave themselves in the best possible position when uh, those negotiations take place. And that means not now. Is it possible, Secretary Rice, for the U.S. and our NATO allies to do what you're calling for, to dramatically and quickly increase military aid without provoking a direct confrontation with Russia? Well, the way to not have a direct confrontation with Russia is to make sure that Russia uh, is deterred from perhaps Uh, expanding this war into places where we have an Article 5 commitment, like Poland. Uh, The way to avoid uh, escalation with Russia is to show Vladimir Putin that he cannot win on the aggression that he has carried out. And we're not talking here about uh, giving the Ukrainians uh, the means to to march to Moscow. We're talking about the means to uh, protect, defend, and in fact, take back uh, some of the territory that the Russians have illegally uh, seized and decided to make Russia. A, a lot of this has been already uh, authorized. Uh, the, the money has been authorized. What we're really arguing for is let's try to anticipate, let's be 
very urgent about getting them what they need. And let's remember that uh, they're fighting uh, the fight of those who believe in a rule of law in international politics. Does the caution recently voiced by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, by General Milley, give you pause? This is the highest ranking military officer in the U.S. He says he does not see a full military victory for Ukraine coming anytime soon. Should the U.S. really be pushing more weapons with urgency into a conflict that he doesn't see Ukraine winning soon? Well, with all due respect to uh, our leaders, we also uh, thought at one point that Kiev was going to fall in five days. So I think it's probably not wise to predict what the Ukrainians can achieve. Uh, and our goal has to be to give them as much as they possibly need to achieve as much as they possibly can. And I think if you'd asked our leaders, our intelligence folks, uh, at the beginning of this in February 24th, would we be sitting here almost a year later saying the Russians have achieved essentially none of their strategic goals? People would have thought that unlikely. Another challenge is one that you anticipated in your piece. You wrote, quote, increasingly members of Congress and others in our public discourse, in our American public discourse, ask, why should we care? This is not our fight. Secretary Rice, what is your answer? My answer is that we want an international system, a world order, in which countries don't have the right, just because they're bigger, to extinguish their smaller neighbors. That has implications for uh, China and Taiwan. That has implications across the globe. And uh, we've just never done very well when we assumed that uh, either it would, these, these uh, struggles would go away or we would be kept out of them. We did think that in 1914. We did think that in 1941 until Pearl Harbor. We did think that until 2001 when it came to our own shores. And so, yes, it's a heavy burden, uh, but we are the only power that shares the values and the interests of an international system that protects freedom, that protects the weaker from the stronger. And uh, we are not this time being asked to spill American blood to do that. We're simply being asked to give the Ukrainians the tools. They're more than willing, we can see to make this their fight, to tell them we'll leave them to the tender mercies of the Russians because we can't spend the money to get military equipment to them. I think that would be an abdication of who we are, what we've been, and by the way, an abdication of the possibility of defending ourselves. Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State from 2005 to 2009. Secretary Rice, thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR Security in one of the most dangerous countries in the world. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed higher across the board. The Dow rose more than six-tenths of a percent, 217 points, to close at 34,190. S&P picked up about a third of a percent to close at 39.83. The Nasdaq notched its fifth day of gains, up more than six-tenths of a percent, to close at 11,001. The price of home heating oil has dropped slightly in Massachusetts. The latest Department of Energy Resources survey shows the average price at 4.56 a gallon. That's down 13 cents a gallon from last week. 
Business news on Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Wet and windy this afternoon, overnight tonight as well. Showers continue off and on. And then for tonight, cloudy skies, but turning a lot warmer. Should break 50 degrees by sunrise tomorrow. And then tomorrow's highs in the mid-50s. The day starts up with showers, ends up with clouds. And then for the holiday weekend, partly sunny Saturday. Look for temperatures in the 30s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says George Santos will remain in Congress despite the New York Republicans' lies and deceptions before his election. McCarthy spoke about the Santos scandal today after a growing number of Republicans in New York, including the state GOP chairman, called for Santos to resign. NPR's Brian Mann has been following this. And Brian, Santos told a number of lies about his resume, his family heritage over the course of his campaign. What did Speaker McCarthy have to say about that? Yeah, Santos really invented his entire biography, as you say, from his work life to his personal life, inventing this story where his ancestors survived the Holocaust. Turns out that's not true. But in this news conference today, Speaker McCarthy really downplayed the extraordinary nature of this scandal. He said Santos is a member in good standing of the GOP majority. The voters have elected George Santos. If there is a concern, he will go through ethics. If there is something that is found, he will be dealt with in that manner. And McCarthy later confirmed that the House Ethics Committee will review Santos's behavior here. And I understand that McCarthy was also asked about whether Santos would receive sensitive committee assignments. What did McCarthy have to say? Yeah, McCarthy said Santos's access to confidential government material will be limited right now. I don't see any way that he's going to have top secret. If you're referring to George Santos, he's got a long way to go to earn trust. And of course, some Republicans want a much tougher line on Santos. GOP leaders in Santos's district held a press conference yesterday and described him as a pariah and a pathological liar. As of today, six out of the 11 GOP House members from New York State say they want Santos booted. Okay, and despite that, Santos, as I understand, has in the past said he is not resigning. Is that still the case? Yeah, it is. Santos appeared on the far right-wing podcast War Room today. It's hosted normally by Steve Bannon, but uh, it was guest hosted by Congressman Matt Gates today. And and Gates framed this scandal as a as a smear job against Santos. One thing I know about this town, they come for the fighters and they are coming for George Santos like nothing I've seen in quite some time. 
And during this appearance, Santos really played into that narrative. He blasted his fellow Republicans who were calling for him to resign. I just pray for all of you when they come for you that you have the same strength I have. And Santos then went on to downplay the scale and the scope of his lies, which he calls embellishments. And he said he'll serve his full term. I was elected by 142,000 people. Until those same 142,000 people tell me they don't want me, uh, we'll find out in two years. Republicans in New York, of course, say they're going to actively oppose Santos if he does choose to run again. Okay, so Brian, setting aside his biography for a second here, there have also been a number of financial questions, including about where Santos got his campaign money. He raised so much that he was able to donate to other Republican candidates. What has he had to say about that? Yeah, he really dodged this question today. Santos has acknowledged having very little income until 2020, but then suddenly his company started showing millions of dollars in assets and revenue, uh, which he donated to his own election effort and to other candidates. The question now is where did that money come from? At least two probes are now underway. When asked repeatedly today about this, where did that money come from? Santos wouldn't answer. All right. That was NPR's Brian Mann. Brian, thank you. Thank you. The East African nation of Somalia is facing a major food crisis driven by a historic drought. The crisis is being made even worse by an ongoing insurgency by the Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab. The fighting is driving Somalis from their homes and complicating efforts to get food aid to people on the verge of starvation. NPR's Jason Bobian has more. In the trauma ward of a hospital in Baidoa, staff tend to the victims of the violence wrought by al-Shabaab on a daily basis. On this day, nurse Amin Muhammad is helping a 15-year-old sit up in a chair next to his hospital bed. 14 days, yes, in ICU. He's been in the ICU for 14 days? Yes, 14 days, yes. And, and uh, why is he here? What happens? Uh, as I guess, landmine explosion, yes. So uh, both legs and uh, also yeah, an abdomen, yes. Despite severe injuries to his legs and abdomen, the doctors say this boy should make a full recovery. One of his friends, however, wasn't so fortunate and was killed in the blast. Compared to other recent attacks by al-Shabaab, an explosion that only kills one person is minor. In October, a bombing of the Ministry of Education in Mogadishu claimed more than 130 lives. And witnesses say the car bombs struck within minutes of each other. Al-Shabaab, in a statement, said it attacked the education ministry because it's indoctrinating children with Christian values. Over the last two decades, the group has carried out brutal attacks across the region, including a deadly siege at a shopping mall in Nairobi. Al-Shabaab claims to be fighting a holy war, but Somalia's new president, Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud, says they are not true Muslims. What they are propagating is not Islam and has nothing to do with Islam. They are a group of mafia covering themselves with a blanket of Islam. Speaking last month at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, President Mahmoud said defeating Al-Shabaab is the top priority of his government. Battles between the militants and newly formed elite units of the Somali army occur nearly on a daily basis. It's not an overnight uh, business to finish them, but soon we will be, we will see, and you will hear definitely Somalia without al-Shabaab. A crucial part of the current offensive by the new government against al-Shabaab is foreign military support, including from the United States. In May of last year, the White House authorized the deployment of roughly 450 troops to Somalia. It was the Biden administration's largest new deployment anywhere in the world. 
The troops, mostly special operations forces, are doing training, logistics, and providing air support to the Somali army, according to the U.S. Ambassador Larry Andre Jr. This is the largest offensive, the most extended offensive, and the first offensive that was initiated and organized and fought by the Somalis. In addition to the U.S. troops, an African Union peacekeeping mission that dates back to 2007 has nearly 18,000 soldiers in Somalia. The American ambassador, Andre in Mogadishu, points out that Somalia desperately needs to rebuild much of its basic infrastructure to help address the current drought. But he recounts how a Turkish company trying to build a road was stymied by al-Shabaab. They lost 50 Turkish engineers to al-Shabaab murderers. Uh, so that uh, tells you that uh, trying to rehabilitate the, uh, the water management infrastructure, which could help deal with droughts, will be impossible until there is progress on the security front. In southwestern Somalia, al-Shabaab controls all of the roads into the city of Baidoa. A local shopkeeper says al-Shabaab's roadblocks are driving up food prices at the same time that the region is in the midst of a deadly food crisis. This merchant doesn't want his name used out of fear of retaliation by the militants. He says al-Shabaab demands taxes from all the local businesses and only allows specific wholesalers to bring in goods from the capital. In the midst of a deadly food crisis, he says this is leading to even more shortages of rice, flour, and other basic commodities. Jason Bobian, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, Celtics trying to make it five straight wins tonight as they meet up with the Brooklyn Nets. The game will be broadcast nationally. Tip-off is at 7.30. Bruins are at the Garden tonight for a 7 o'clock date with the Seattle Kraken. Both teams are flying high. The Bruins have won their last four games. The Kraken have nabbed their last six. In the next half hour, remembering Jeff Beck. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. 41 degrees now at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story of the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family. Starts January 21st, MRT.org. When you're in the farming trade, moving from one farm to another is not as simple as just packing up the produce and the livestock. Luckily for us here, like there was already a barn, but we had to put up a new greenhouse. I'm Kai Rizdahl, breaking ground on a new farm next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to look into classified documents found at the Penn Biden Center, a Washington think tank, and at President Biden's Delaware home. Robert Herr, a Trump-appointed former U.S. attorney from Maryland, has also served in the FBI under Christopher Wray. NPR's Franco Ordonia says the investigation, though, has been going on for a while. We did learn today also that Robert Lazar, he was this 
U.S. Uh, he was the special U.S. attorney for Chicago who was um, appointed by Merrick Garland to look into these first batch, was actually appointed last week and had started that process. Uh, so there's been a lot of information that had been going on behind the scenes uh, that only got out, not because the White House informed the American public, but because it was uh, leaked into the press. And Pierre's Franco Ordonez. The National Weather Service says a large tornado hit Mississippi, Tennessee, and Alabama today, causing damage, but so far no reports of injuries. Meanwhile, Californians are getting a short break today from the wet start to 2023, though another storm is expected this weekend. Cap Radio's Steve Milney has more. Work crews are taking advantage of today's calmer weather to clear major highways closed because of rock slides or smothered with mud. And utility crews are making good progress on restoring electricity to people who've been in the dark many since last weekend. Lindsay Van Lanningham is with the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. The break in the weather is welcome for our crews. Tough weather conditions can slow them down, particularly when it's really, really windy. We can't send our guys up in bucket trucks. The State Department of Water Resources says California has been hit by seven storms since the end of December, and two more slightly weaker ones are expected before the state gets a reprieve by the end of next week. For NPR News, I'm Steve Milney in Sacramento. All Street higher by the close. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a new leader at the state-run Chelsea Soldiers Home. Governor Moore Healy today fired Superintendent Eric Johnson and replaced him with an acting superintendent. Johnson was appointed during the Baker administration to run the nursing facility for military veterans. The move follows a Boston Globe report that highlighted $87,000 in overtime and other pay to the home's director of nursing last year. The state inspector general last week also reported poor living conditions and a poor work environment at the facility. The Peabody Essex Museum is returning a trove of historic records from the Salem Witch Trials to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. WBR's Andrea Shea has more. The Salem Museum has been safeguarding 527 witch trials documents since 1980. Now Director and CEO Linda Roscoe Hardigan says they're going back to the state's high court, the SJC, and they'll be preserved in newly updated judicial archives. We've also digitized everything which means that we will still, through our library, the Phillips Library, be able to provide digital access to the witch trial papers, as will the SJC. The SJC was founded after more than 200 people were accused of witchcraft in the 1690s. 25 were executed or died because of the hysteria. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. The city of Boston is creating a new office to support young people. Mayor Michelle Wu made the announcement this morning at a community center in the South End. This new Office of Youth Engagement and Advancement, also known as Oh Yeah, will recognize the essential role of our young people in our city's success today and into the future. Mayor Wu says the new office will help coordinate activities for kids and conduct what the mayor says will be the first ever survey of young people in Boston about the challenges they're facing. And one of the most influential editors in the world of fiction has died. Michael Curtis worked at The Atlantic for nearly six decades. He edited literary luminaries including John Updike, Joyce Carol Oates, and Raymond Carver, and he helped launch the careers of many other major authors. Curtis was known for sending a personal note to the many writers whose submissions he turned down. He had offered them critiques and encouragement. Mike Curtis lived in Boston, the Boston area, for decades before he and his wife moved to South Carolina. He died yesterday at the age of 88. It's 435.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. Rain keeps coming this evening, overnight tonight, ending by noon tomorrow. The thing that will change the most is the mercury. Temperatures tonight should start out in the upper 30s and then get gradually warmer and warmer all the way to 57 degrees tomorrow. Breezy and gray all day. Sunshine returns for the weekend, partly sunny on Saturday, mainly sunny on Sunday. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches the one-year mark, NATO allies continue to supply Ukraine with sophisticated Western-made weapons. This week, officials in Poland and Britain signaled their interest in sending advanced main battle tanks. Well, NPR's Frank Langford has been at NATO headquarters in Brussels this week following the story. Hey, Frank. Uh, hey, Mary Louise. So Western countries have given Ukraine tanks before. What is the significance of these new ones? These are much, much better. The Poles, I was speaking to the Polish ambassador today, they're planning to send German-made Leopard 2 tanks. These are more effective, more lethal, and better off-road. I was talking to Tomasz uh, Szatkowski. He's the ambassador here, and here's how he described them. They're basically better design tanks. They are more precise, more mobile. They're also better designed for defensive actions. They were supposed to repel the overwhelming Soviet tank onslaught during the Cold War. Now, Mary Louise, Tchaikovsky says these Leopards, they easily outmatch Russians' second-generation T-72 tanks, which I'm sure people have heard of over the years, and better even than the later model T-90s. There are a couple of other points, though. We're only really talking about 14 Leopards. The Polish are concerned about their stocks, and they want to see more NATO allies uh, contribute to this. And the Germans, of course, have to approve the export of the Leopards, but they're expected to do so. Um, okay, so how would these better t- how would these better tanks actually help Ukraine on the battlefield? They, they would probably help a lot. I was in southern Ukraine right before, around the time of the Kherson Offensive when it kicked off last year, and there was a commander I was talking to at the time, and he said they really need more advanced tanks like this because they provide obviously more firepower, and they help protect the infantry as they're trying to get the infantry into the fight to take territory, which of course is very difficult and and costly. This isn't just about warfare strategy. I mean, analysts told me recently that the Ukrainians suffered really big losses in that push to take the city of Kherson. And so when they have more tanks, they also save more soldiers' lives. How are Western stocks of these weapons holding up? Well, the Western stocks in general of weapons are not, they're, they're not a lot of them. I mean, the Ukrainians have been burning through ammunition at an astonishing rate, and it's understandable. They're in an existential, they see this as an existential threat. But every ambassador I talked to at, in NATO in the last couple of days, they're all concerned about this. And, you know, what this has come down to is 
You know, at the end of the Cold War, factories closed. There was no demand or market for these kind of heavy weapons because nobody here saw a major land war coming. Mm. So now NATO allies, they're meeting with arms makers. I was talking to Julianne Smith. She's America's ambassador to NATO. And she said NATO's really working on weapons procurement planning. This is what she said. So if the NATO alliance says every member of the NATO alliance will be required to have, let's make up a figure, three months of munitions on hand for future contingencies, that then is the signal that the private sector requires to flip the lights back on to a line that had previously been shut down. So, okay, that's NATO countries trying to Mm -hmm. ramp up supplies for the future. For right now, Frank, are there enough weapons to keep Ukraine in this fight? I mean, for now, yes, but I heard worries today that were pretty significant. I talked to one ambassador who was worried that Ukrainians could run low on air defense missiles, which they used to shoot down attack drones and cruise missiles, and they're expensive to make, they take time to make, and it's crucial that the Ukrainians continue to deny Russians' air superiority because otherwise, in the long run, Ukrainian tanks, soldiers, and even cities could just become sitting ducks. And Piers Frank Lankfitt in Brussels. Thank you. Good to talk, Mary Louise. Across the U.S., people face sky-high rents and a housing shortage. But for many, the first barrier is the rental application fee. It can add up to hundreds of dollars. As NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports, states and cities are trying to limit the fees, but it's proving tough. In Spokane, Washington, James Lope has spent months looking for another house to rent. He and his wife have three children at home, including a young adult daughter. And like most everywhere... That means each place they apply, all three adults must pay an application fee. And it typically covers a background and credit check. And that fee can run anywhere from $35 each up to, I've seen, $85 a piece. Like right now, we are not able to put that money out. Lopez already pays half his income for rent. He holds two jobs and a side gig with DoorDash to make it work. And he's had to stop his housing search for now. He says it's frustrating that application fees are not refundable, even when dozens apply for the same place. It's like, wow, they're taking all these people's money knowing that they're not going to have a chance to get it. Like, do you really need that many? Spokane's city council is debating a measure to limit application fees. And this month, California became the latest in a string of states and cities to enact such a law. Assemblymember Chris Ward, who represents San Diego, says the state's rental market is incredibly tight. And we've heard reports for people applying for up to 10 or 12 units or more in order to secure their one place to live. Ward says the new California law he sponsored can save renters money by letting them get their own basic screening from a third party that's good everywhere for 30 days. It would include income, rental history, and any evictions. The renter would just have to do that one time, and then by procuring this very secure document, would be able to use that when approaching a would-be landlord to rent that unit. Recent reusable screening laws in Maryland and Washington state also include a credit check. Last year, Eugene, Oregon, took a different approach. It capped rental application fees at $10. Tenant activist Kenan Cronin with the nonprofit Housing Oregon says it's part of a broader push to keep people from falling into homelessness. You can lose 10 bucks and move on, right? It's not the end of the world. But losing 75 bucks, you know, three or four times, you're out of cash to, to look for a place. 
All these measures face strong opposition from landlords. Nicole Lupano is with the National Apartment Association. We never agree that there's a one-size-fits-all solution for any housing policy. She says screening is important for tenant safety and to avoid future evictions. Landlords may want more data, say if a reusable check does not include criminal history. And she says they should be able to charge a reasonable fee for it. They have to make those determinations about the screening company, what they use to create their policies, and they need that discretion to figure out how to do that well. But even where laws to limit application fees do exist, they're hard to enforce. In fact, it turns out Vermont banned the fees in 1999, yet legal aid attorneys there say they are still widespread. Same in New York, which more recently set a $20 cap and allowed reusable screenings. Stephanie Rudolph of the Legal Aid Society in New York City says there's not been a lot of education, so some landlords and tenants may be unaware, and the law does not spell out damages if they don't comply. But then there's also just the fear that if you don't do exactly what the broker or the landlord tells you, you are not going to get the apartment. That's not wrong, she says which is why even she advises many clients to just pay the fee, even if it's not legal. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Parts of California are seeing a break from a series of relentless winter storms. Businesses in the Santa Cruz area are using the reprieve to clean up spoiled food and debris. But officials say true recovery can't begin until after the last expected storms in the middle of next week. From member station KAZU, Jeremiah Edding reports. Capitola is the classic California beach town just down the coast from Santa Cruz. Sand, surf, and usually bustling restaurants and shops. It's one of the economic hearts of the Monterey Bay. But over the last week, storms in the ocean pummeled this place. Yeah, it was apocalyptic. It was just amazing. The waves were crashing through the windows, through the railing, uh, tearing out the wharf. That's Carl Hyman. He owns Toots Coffee, a fixture in Capitola for more than four decades. And then the buildings all along the Esplanade here are actually built over water. So the water underneath was causing damage, the wave action underneath. Toots Coffee is on the second floor, but Hyman's building had damage to the sewer line. And he lost power, and with it, all the food he hoped to sell to customers. I'm just cleaning out because all the perishables are bad. The milk, the pies, the cookies, the cakes, all that stuff has to be thrown away. Just down the esplanade, Jeff Lantis and his staff sweep up the floor in the dim interior of the Sandbar restaurant. But he's facing a much, much bigger cleanup. Like many of the ground floor businesses along the Esplanade, the sandbar has a yellow tag from the city on its window, meaning it's heavily damaged. These enormous waves came with the high tide at the same time and just rippled the floors and tore everything apart. I mean, we got lifted up off the ground about three feet. The power is out, dirt and debris are everywhere, and there's a hole in the floor that goes straight to the ocean below. Lantis pulls back the plywood on one of the boarded up windows and reveals a view the shining Monterey Bay, and the destroyed Capitola Wharf, torn in half by the storm. At first, he says, he was sure they lost everything, and he isn't sure how much will be covered by his insurance. But uh, I'm hoping that, like, the civil engineer came through and said, oh, it's 
salvageable. But much of that salvage work has to wait. Capitola Police Captain Sarah Ryan says right now, folks need to shore up what they can before the next storms come. So we're not going to see as much recovery right in the here and the now because we are still amidst some weather activity that's a little concerning. Only after this series of major storms has passed after next week, she says, the real recovery can begin. The engineers, contractors, builders. Yeah, I think we're going to really see it kick into high gear. I think I know more about planning than I ever thought I would as a police officer. Everyone will have more to learn in the days ahead. The city's initial estimate is at least $2.5 million in damage. The destruction extends beyond the businesses that are right on the ocean to places like the Tuscan restaurant Caruso's. It's a block inland and didn't see water damage like other places, but it has been without power since late last week. Owner Melissa Serreteño is tossing out her entire inventory of perishable food, expensive meats and cheeses. Even our wine, um, our wine is probably ruined. That's because the wood-fired oven stayed hot and without power to run the fans that cool things down, the wine overheated. Once her power is back, she can reorder food and wine and get her business up and running again. But, she says, things won't be right until the whole esplanade is back. We're all a community. So if it affects them, it affects all of us because together we're a village and the village is going to be stronger. It could take some time for tourists to return. Woody debris litters the beach. The storm smashed the pier, a big attraction. Much of the town's typical beachfront charm is in ruins. For NPR News, I'm Jeremiah Edding in Capitola, California. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBR's All Things Considered, one of the most acclaimed guitarists in rock and roll history died this week at the age of 78. We'll remember Jeff Beck. Also, an editor of MIT's Technology Review talks about how the publication chose which breakthrough technologies to tout for its latest list. In sports, Celtics will play their third game in four nights tonight. They're out in Brooklyn to take on the Nets in a game that's nationally televised. And the Bruins are also in action tonight. They are hosting the Seattle Kraken at the Garden, 7 o'clock matchup. The Red Sox officially made Corey Kluber part of the team today. They signed the two-time Cy Young Award winner to a one-year deal reportedly worth $10 million with a club option for an additional year. At $11 million, Kluber's family has a home in Winchester. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com Country singer Margot Price has a new album out, tackles tough topics that hit close to home. Addiction. Loss. The pandemic, it really, it stripped away so much. I was left with my own demons. I couldn't run from them anymore. The struggles and the joy that inspired Marco Price. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The ground beneath your feet might contain Neanderthal DNA, which scientists can now extract and analyze. The heart beating in your chest? Well, it could, if necessary, be swapped out for the heart of a pig. These are a couple of the 10 entries on this year's annual list of technological breakthroughs. It's put out by the MIT Technology Review. And we are joined now by Amy Nordrum, who is executive editor of Operations at the Review. Welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. So much as I would love to get through all 10 of these, I'm going to try to zoom in on just a, a few of the ones that surprised me. And I will start with that 
Neanderthal DNA that I mentioned. Tell us about the emerging field of paleogenetics. Sure. This is a field of science that has really been growing for the last decade or so, and it's all about using ancient DNA to investigate early humans and related species and just help us better understand our origins. And what's really changed here recently is that scientists have become a lot better at processing and preparing ancient DNA to be analyzed. It makes it easier and more legible for sequencing machines, and they've created new kinds of machines that are more specialized for handling this kind of DNA, which can sometimes be really damaged. And they've gotten so good at this that they can now extract human DNA from samples of dirt just taken from archaeological sites. They don't even need a bone or a tooth to learn about the people who live there. The detail that blew my mind is is you can extract DNA from dirt that contains Neanderthal pee, urine. I mean, that's it's mind-blowing. That's right. It's incredible. It's not just human DNA either. Researchers have now been able to sequence DNA that was more than a million years old that came from a mammoth and also DNA from fish and plants that was more than two million years old. This is fascinating in and of itself, but what might this tell us about ourselves, about humans today? Well, there's lots of things. Using these techniques, uh, scientists have discovered two extinct species of humans that we didn't know existed before these techniques were available. And there's lots of things as well that it can tell us about early ecosystems when we're learning about these ancient plants and animals that live together. You can really get a picture of what an entire ecosystem looked like and also how it's evolved since that time. All right, let's fast forward right up to the present. Battery recycling. Why does this make the list? Right. I mean, there's more demand than ever for batteries, and they're really critical to helping us achieve our climate goals. They let us store energy for use later, and they help convert things that run on fossil fuels like cars to be able to run on clean energy. But they're really dirty to produce, and we're going to need a lot more of them in the future. So if we're going to do that and really scale up, particularly in the case of electric vehicles, we need to start finding practical ways to recycle them. So there's several companies here in the U.S. that have really started to develop processes that allow them to separate out individual metals from old batteries because they contain lithium as well as cobalt, copper, and nickel. And they're now building pilot facilities throughout the U.S. to try and do this at scale. Okay, let me turn now to the pig's heart. This one is a bit more aspirational. However, there is now a man who survived for two months with a pig heart in his chest, opening the door to all kinds of possibility. What is going on in the world of organ transplants? That's right. We have a number of different types of methods that scientists are using to develop uh, organs on our list this year, all rounded up into one category that we're calling organs on demand. And this is exciting because it's a big problem. The shortage of organs available for transplants is a major issue. There's people that die here in the U.S. and around the world every single day because they're on a waiting list and can't get an organ fast enough. And one way, as you said, to provide more organs to people is actually to grow them in animals. And there's several companies that are now raising pigs that have been gene edited to make their organs more compatible with humans so they aren't rejected by the immune system when they're implanted into a person. There's other techniques out there too. There are Companies working on 3D printing organs, including lungs, kidneys, livers, and that's really hard for lots of reasons. Uh, One approach, one way of doing this is to kind of make a scaffold or an outline of an organ and then cover it in a patient's own cells to keep them from being rejected. And it's still really early days for those efforts, but some of these techniques are starting to get uh, tested out in humans for the first time now. Amy Nordrum, Executive Editor of Operations at the MIT Technology Review, and you can read the whole 2023 list of breakthrough technologies at technologyreview.com. Amy Nordrum, thanks. Thanks so much. Guitarist Jeff Beck died this week. 
According to a release from his family, the 78-year-old musician died suddenly after contracting bacterial meningitis. Beck was a part of the so-called British invasion of the 1960s and was widely respected well into his 70s. NPR's Felix Contreras has this report. The British invasion was fueled largely by American blues, and Jeff Beck was a big blues fan. His name pops up throughout that early 1960s history, first as a replacement for Eric Clapton in the legendary British rock group The Yardbirds, then as the leader of the Jeff Beck group with the very young Rod Stewart. Unlike his British contemporaries who made their names playing with one band back then, musicians like Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin and Pete Townsend in The Who, Jeff Beck was associated with a variety of bands and configurations throughout his career, often invited to perform as a guest musician for artists like Stevie Wonder and jazz fusion musician Jan Hammer. He was a relentlessly creative musician, exploring not just rock and roll, but also jazz, blues, and R&B. In 1976, he released Blow by Blow, a solo album that was his most commercially successful record. Jeff Beck was a notorious loner, that is, he largely avoided the spotlight that other rock stars were used to, preferring instead to spend time with his collection of vintage hot rod cars at his home in England. He explained why in an interview with USA Today in 2012. When I'm there, it's, there's something in the garage, there's a certain position, I don't know where it is, somewhere towards the back of it, a ray of, a ray of hope comes over me. You know, even if it's raining, I just think this is a nice place. Shut the door, get on with it. As a guitarist, he was admired for his one-of-a-kind sound, which he created by manipulating his amplifiers, the way he picked his strings using only the fleshy part of his right thumb, and a singular use of the tremolo or whammy bar that stuck out from his famous Fender Stratocaster guitar. Jeff Beck was truly one of the last guitar heroes who came of age expanding the technical capabilities of the electric guitar. In his hands, it was as expressive as the human voice. Felix Contreras, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. 
and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Rain keeps coming this evening and overnight tonight, ending by about noon tomorrow. That uh, the most, the biggest change that is, is in the mercury. Temperatures tonight should start out in the upper 30s and then get warmer, reaching about 56 degrees by tomorrow. Breezy and gray all day long tomorrow. Saturday, snow and rain showers, highs just about 40. Sunday, more messy weather, snow and rain showers, maybe just uh, limited sunshine. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Inflation cooled off a bit last month, but prices are still climbing faster than they did prior to the pandemic. We want to return the economy to a place where Americans, businesses, consumers, communities, they don't have to think about inflation every day. It's Thursday, January 12th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. break down the state of inflation coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, ExxonMobil's own climate research from decades ago painted an accurate picture of human-caused climate change effects, according to a new scientific paper. Even so, the oil giant continued a policy that successfully stalled action to curb greenhouse gas emissions. And it's the last few days of open enrollment for ACA insurance and another record year for signups. And why do some 5 million people eligible for nearly free insurance never sign up for it? It's 501. News headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Amid word, another batch of classified documents has turned up, this time at President Joe Biden's Delaware home. Attorney General Merrick Garland today announced the appointment of a special counsel to investigate. Robert Herr, a former U.S. attorney and veteran prosecutor, worked in the Trump administration. I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. But under the regulations, the extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter. Yesterday, it was revealed documents some marked classified were found in November at a think tank where Biden had an office after his time as vice president. Today, Biden acknowledged a document with classified markings. It's been found in his personal library at his home in Delaware, along with documents that were discovered in his garage earlier. Biden has said he's cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department. Six of 11 House Republicans from New York say they want Congressman George Santos gone. But for now, newly installed House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he won't take immediate action against the New York Republican caught lying about his resume and personal history. McCarthy says Santos will face a probe by the House Ethics Committee. 
Here's NPR's Brian Mann. A growing number of Republicans in New York State want Santos to give up his Long Island House seat over sweeping lies about his work history, his education, and his ancestors' fictional history escaping the Holocaust. They've called on McCarthy to take action against Santos. During a news conference, McCarthy said the Ethics Committee will review Santos's behavior. He also suggested Santos will have limited access to sensitive material. I don't see any way that he's going to have top secret. If you're referring to George Santos, he's got a long way to go to earn trust. At least two probes are already underway, looking in part at a mysterious $700,000 donation Santos made to his own campaign. Brian Mann, NPR News. Nurses at two New York City hospitals are back at work after a three-day strike. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports their union announced a deal to raise the ratio of nurses to patients. Thousands of nurses walked off the job Monday after negotiations over what they called safe staffing ratios broke down at Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx and Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. The nurses said they had been working through multiple health emergencies without enough staff at the bedsides of critically ill patients. On picket lines, they demanded the hospitals step up hiring and offer incentives to retain current staff amid a nationwide shortage of nurses. Their union, the New York State Nurses Association, announced a deal before dawn on Thursday, which included penalties if the hospitals failed to comply with new staffing ratios, prompting nurses to immediately return to work. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, New York. Stocks continued their winning streak for the week. The Dow was up 216 points. The Nasdaq closed up 69 points. The S&P rose 13 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are calling on drug maker Johnson & Johnson to address the ongoing nationwide shortage of infant and children's Tylenol and Motrin. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren, along with Congresswoman Catherine Clark, Lori Trahan, and Ayanna Presley, want to know when the company first realized there was a problem and how long it took them to notify regulators. The cold and flu season, along with the respiratory virus RSV and COVID, are contributing factors to the shortage. Governor Maura Healey is providing more detail on her plan to ensure equity in her administration. Today, she told the interview, internet interview show Java with Jimmy that she'll sign an executive order to create a task force to make sure there's equity in everything the state does under her leadership and that of Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. And the whole point is, you know, breaking down systemic barriers that have held people back, particularly people of color, but we could talk about LGBTQ people, we could talk about people with disabilities, right? Talk about, you know, a range of of disparities out there. But this is really, really important to me and, and to Kim. The governor says she'll formally issue an order at a later date. The new monument on the Boston Common honoring Dr. Martin Luther King and his wife Coretta will be unveiled tomorrow. The couple met in Boston. Creator Hank Willis Thomas tells WBRS Here and Now that visitors can walk inside the Embrace Monument and feel as if they're standing in the middle of a hug. So many of the monuments that we see, we're looking up at someone else on a pedestal that we'll never be able to get close to. And this is a piece that literally you are inside of. And, you know, you are, I do touch it every, every time I go inside. Willis Thomas based his statue on a photo of the couple hugging after Dr. King won the Nobel Peace Prize. And a new request to slow down is in effect for ships and other vessels around Nantucket for the next two weeks. An aerial survey team detected endangered North Atlantic freight whales in waters southeast of the island yesterday. The so-called slow zone in the area is designed to protect the whales from being struck by ships. In the forecast, more rain overnight tonight, ending by about noontime tomorrow. Temperatures should start out in the upper 30s tonight and then get warmer 
About 50 degrees by daybreak tomorrow, 56 by tomorrow afternoon, breezy and gray all day. 41 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Inflation continues to impact daily life in the U.S., but there was a glimmer of good news today. Prices in December were up 6.5% from a year ago, and that's the lowest inflation we have seen in over a year. A sharp drop in gasoline prices last month helped to keep the overall cost of living in check, but inflation fighters at the Federal Reserve say it is too early to declare victory. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Good afternoon. So, Scott, it sounds like inflation is coming down, but it is still higher than most people would like. What's going on here? Yeah, inflation is definitely coming down after hitting a four-decade high last summer. That is the good news you mentioned. The drop in gas prices is part of that. We've also seen a drop in the price of a lot of goods as snarled supply chains start to come untangled. Uh, For example, the price of new cars dropped last month for the first time in almost two years. Other prices, though, are still going up, including the price of a lot of services, like car repairs. They jumped almost 20% in the last year. So we're not finished with inflation, but speaking at the White House today, President Biden said we are moving in the right direction. The data is clear. Even though inflation is high and major economies around the world is coming down in America month after month, giving families some real breathing room. Now, one place you still see inflations at the supermarket, everybody's got to eat, and grocery prices are up nearly 12% this year, this past year. Uh, Egg prices are up almost 60%, largely as a result of the avian flu, which wiped out a lot of laying hens. But, you know, supermarket inflation last month was the lowest it's been in nearly two years. And some forecasters think we're going to start to see outright declines in food prices in the not-too-distant future. Okay, that sounds like some good news. So does this mean that the Federal Reserve can just relax and stop raising interest rates? Not just yet. Uh, While inflation has come down, it's still well above the Fed's target of 2%. And Mary Daly, who heads the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank, told the Wall Street Journal this week it's just too soon to let up on the brakes. We want to return the economy to a place where Americans, businesses, consumers, communities, they don't have to think about inflation every day. When I'm out there in the community... That's the number one topic on people's mind. Investors overwhelmingly expect the central bank to raise its benchmark interest rate by a quarter percentage point at its next meeting in a few weeks. That would be the smallest rate hike, though, since last March. Uh, The Fed's already raised rates pretty aggressively so far, and it hasn't really hurt the job market yet. That has some analysts thinking uh, the Fed might succeed in getting prices under control without a big jump in unemployment. Uh, The stock market liked what it saw in the inflation report today. The Dow jumped more than 200 points. And other countries are also wrestling with high inflation. How is that affecting the global economy? This week, the World Bank slashed its forecast for economic growth, both here in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told NPR today that while the U.S. is making what she called substantial progress in fighting inflation, she is concerned about a slowdown in the global economy. Yellen says the best way to combat that would be to end Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That invasion and the brutality and the economic spillovers from it are a very important factor that is responsible for diminished global growth 
at a time when we're just beginning to recover from the pandemic. Yellen says the combination of slow growth and high interest rates could be a real double whammy for debt-ridden developing countries. NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. President Biden can now add a special counsel to his list of political concerns. This afternoon, after the disclosure of more improperly stored classified documents, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced he is appointing a special counsel. Robert Hur, a Justice Department official during the Trump administration, will investigate President Biden's handling of classified information. President Biden's lawyer says he's confident the investigation will show the documents were, quote, inadvertently misplaced. Well, our next guest knows what it is like to lead a White House with a president under investigation. Before he served as CIA director and defense secretary, Leon Panetta was chief of staff to then-President Bill Clinton. During that time, President Clinton was investigated multiple times. Welcome back to All Things Considered, Mr. Secretary. Good to be with you. So you have been on all sides of this, handling classified information at the White House, at the CIA. Was it inevitable that a special counsel would be appointed, do you think, once yet another batch of documents was discovered? I I don't think there was any question, but that when a second group of documents was discovered, uh, that ultimately there would have to be a special counsel to do the investigation. Uh, This is uh, obviously an embarrassment for the White House, but ultimately it too has to be investigated and probably the best way to investigate it is with a special counsel. You called it an embarrassment. Is it also damaging for President Biden? Whatever the special counsel and eventually finds, just politically, this is a president who appears to be getting ready to mount another campaign for president. Well, there's no question that you know it's both an embarrassment and damaging to the credibility of the White House because uh, obviously uh, the president uh, has criticized uh, former President Trump and the way he handled classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. I don't think there's any question that these issues have to be investigated, but what all of this is pointing out is a much bigger problem with regards to both the labeling and handling of classified material. I think there's a very serious problem involved with regards to how those documents are, in fact, followed and how they are protected and how they are filed in the White House. And uh, so I I think there's a lot of issues here that are going to have to be looked at. You're making the point that perhaps one of the reasons why classified documents keep turning up in places where they shouldn't is that too many documents are classified in the first place? Well, there's a combined problem here. I think one is uh, whether or not we overclassify certain documents. I mean, that's been an issue that's been criticized for a long time, and I think there's some validity to that. But the second one is how are classified documents, in fact, handled? Normally, you know, my understanding uh, when I was both chief of staff and director of the CIA is that you document uh, these classified documents. You make sure that they are protected in a secure area. You require that those documents be returned to uh, that area. And obviously, that system has broken down. Speak to the parallels between these situations, because you nodded to the fact that President Biden's predecessor, former President Trump, um, has also been investigated. How how different is this? How similar is this to the Mar-a-Lago documents? Well, it's obvious that in the President Trump situation, uh, I think uh, he was generally 
not very careful or responsible with regards to classified documents. I mean, I think there's a history here that he didn't pay a lot of attention to a classification, that he threw these documents around, put them in boxes, uh, and generally just did not handle them well. I would assume that with President Biden, there was at least a sense of concern about making sure that uh, documents like this are, in fact, handled properly. But it's also clear that for some reason, this did not happen in this case. And I think staff probably bear some responsibility in both situations for what happened. Before I let you go, I wonder if you, you're obviously not at the White House. We've tracked you down today in California. But what is it like to be working inside the White House on the day that a special counsel to investigate the president is named? Frankly, it just provides an added burden to uh, a place where you're constantly handling crisis after crisis to begin with. We've been speaking with Leon Panetta, who has served in multiple roles in multiple administrations, including as White House Chief of Staff, CIA Director, and Secretary of Defense. Secretary Panetta, thank you. Good to be with you. The annual United Nations Climate Conference will be in the United Arab Emirates late this year. The UAE is a major oil producer, but it's also a place battling extreme heat. Today, it upset environmentalists by appointing the head of the country's main state oil company to lead the negotiations at COP28. NPR's Aya Batrawi reports from Dubai. Environmental activist group Greenpeace says it's deeply alarmed by the UAE's appointment of Sultan al-Jaber to lead this November's Global Climate Conference. Other environmentalists called it a breathtaking conflict of interest and a slap in the face to those suffering from man-made climate disasters. Al-Jaber is head of Abu Dhabi's state-owned oil firm Adnoc. But the announcement of his appointment noted at length his background overseeing clean energy projects and his past experience as the UAE's climate change envoy. He's also helping funnel billions of dollars in government investments in carbon capture technologies and energy efficiency projects. But oil is key to the UAE's economy, allowing its unelected leadership to provide citizens with massive perks, develop the country, and expand influence abroad. And Gulf Arab states argue the world still runs on fossil fuels, energy sources that billions of people rely on for their existence. Here's how Al-Jabr himself put it last year at an energy forum in Dubai. We cannot and must not unplug the current energy system before we have built the new one. He says even the U.S. and Europe are acknowledging this. Transitions, by definition, take time. And this one will take time. But scientists caution countries need to cut carbon emissions now to slow global warming. The International Energy Agency says there should be no new investments in coal plants or oil and gas. Instead, they've called for a massive deployment in clean energy technologies. Al-Jaber disagrees. Here he is again in remarks last year. Let's create a clear roadmap that is based on real and solid foundations. Let's adopt policies that strengthen the stability of energy markets. Let's continue to invest in new and future energies. But let's not defund the current energy system. While the UAE needs oil, there's also a realization here that the long summers are getting even hotter. It's so dangerous to work outside midday during some months that the government has outlawed it. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, California is moving ahead with plans to dismantle the largest death row system in America. WBUR supporters include Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story of the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family, starts January 21st, MRT.org. Stocks closed higher across the board today. The Dow rose more than six-tenths of a percent, 217 points, to close at 34,190. S&P picked up about a third of a percent to close at 39.83. The Nasdaq notched its fifth day of gains, up more than six-tenths of a percent, to close at 11,001. The number of millionaires in Massachusetts jumped by nearly 9 percent in 2020 from the year before. That's according to newly released Internal Revenue Service data. The figures show Massachusetts has the second highest percentage of million-dollar earners of any state behind Connecticut. The largest increases in the number of new millionaires were in Idaho, Utah, and Montana. Each saw a jump of more than 30 percent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. A dreary and rainy night that should turn strangely warm about the 50s by dawn. Well, weather should continue tomorrow, and so should the unseasonable temperatures. About 56 for a high tomorrow. Cloudy all day long, windy as well. The weekend should be mixed. Saturday, gray skies, chance of light rain or snow, about 40 degrees for a high. Sunday, maybe some more rain or snow showers, also the possibility of sunshine. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For a second straight year, enrollment in ACA, Affordable Care Act, marketplaces set a record. Nearly 16 million people have enrolled, and in most places, people can still sign up till Sunday. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin explains why these health insurance plans got more popular. First of all, the plans are cheaper for people than they used to be. The government has pumped billions of dollars into subsidies to keep costs down for consumers. Another reason why more people are signing up? There's more help. This year, we really caught our stride. That's Katie Rodgers-Turner. She runs the Family Healthcare Foundation, which is part of the Tampa Bay Navigator Project in Florida. Navigators help people understand their options, decide on a plan, and get signed up for it all for free. They're paid through government grants. The Trump administration slashed funding for navigators. The Biden administration shored it up. The Tampa Bay Navigator Project went from having a team of 16 navigators to this year having 35. So we've been really able to spread out the need and the demand 
amongst those navigators. One of the people her organization helped recently was Erin Dimmig. She and her husband Tyler are 30 years old. They live in Plant City, Florida. And right now she is, as she puts it, very pregnant. She's due with her first child in February. My husband got a new job offer and that puts him in a 90-day insurance gap and we were doing 60 days. They couldn't afford to keep paying for the insurance he'd had through his old job. COBRA was going to cost them $1,600 a month, and that plan had been expensive for them anyway. She Googled her way to healthcare.gov, the federal insurance marketplace, which Florida and lots of other states use, and she started to answer questions like size of household, income. Once you click the You're Pregnant button, it asks you all sorts of confusing questions, and I was absolutely in over my head. So I, like, went to the Find Help place. Localhelp.healthcare.gov has a directory to find navigators in your area. Erin found a local community center on the list and called them. I called, and they were like, well, George comes in on Thursday. So the Dimmigs went to see George Masson. She was so stressed she would be uninsured when she went into labor. But then he found me the plan, and then he told me all of the things, and I realized how much money it was going to save us. I cried in his office. I cried when we found out that we were going to be saving a lot of money. She estimates it's going to save them $9,000 compared to their old plan. They're not done with health insurance. After the baby's born, they'll need to add the baby to their plan, decide whether to sign up for her husband's new employer-based plan when he becomes eligible. George said that he would help walk us through that. So she's not worried. Rogers Turner says the Dimmicks aren't alone. People have been really pleased with the cost of the insurance plans and the options that they have. Federal health officials say four out of five enrollees qualify for plans that cost $10 or less per month. And five million people who are uninsured qualify for $0 premium plans. Enrollment is still open on the Federal Health Exchange, healthcare.gov, and in most state marketplaces until Sunday, January 15. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. California this week is moving ahead with efforts to dismantle the largest death row system in America. Under Governor Gavin Newsom, the state on Wednesday began the process of permanently moving condemned inmates, all 671 of them, into the general prison population. NPR's Eric Westervelt has our story, and just as a warning, this piece contains a graphic description of violent crime. Technically, the death penalty still exists in California. Prosecutors can still seek it. But no one's been put to death in the state in 17 years. And in 2019, Governor Newsom, a Democrat, imposed a moratorium on executions, and he closed the death chamber at San Quentin, the decrepit and still heavily used 19th century prison overlooking San Francisco Bay. Not long after, the state launched a pilot program that voluntarily moved 101 condemned inmates off death row. This week, the state moved to make that voluntary depopulation mandatory and permanent. It's in keeping with Newsom's long-held belief, here speaking on the issue last year, that who gets sentenced to death in America has little connection to justice. And that's a hell of a thing. The prospect of you ending up on death row has more to do with your wealth and race than it does your guilt or innocence. Think about that for a second. When we talk about justice, we preach justice, but as a nation, we don't practice it on death row. 
After a 45-day public comment period, more death row prisoners will soon start to join regular inmates in seven other prisons in the state with maximum security units. No one will be resentenced in the moves, the Corrections Department says. Most will now be able to work in prison as clerks, laundry, or kitchen helpers, with 70% of their pay going to victim restitution. Anti-capital punishment groups are elated that the state with the largest condemned population is, in effect, moving to join the 23 other states that have abolished their death rows. I'm thrilled. Gavin Newsom is doing a very smart thing and a very positive thing. That's actor Mike Farrell, who chairs the group Death Penalty Focus. Farrell calls capital punishment unjust, barbaric, and biased against people of color. While he supports the move, he notes that many death row inmates face serious psychological hurdles. It's going to be very difficult. There are many people on death row with serious mental issues, and many of them have been in uh, solitary for decades. I think it's a very good move on his part. I just think that it has to be done extraordinarily carefully and very humanely. In recent years, governors in Pennsylvania and Oregon have also imposed moratoriums on the death penalty. In part, California's reforms grew out of passage of 2016's Prop 66, which promised to speed up the time between a death sentence and an execution. As part of that voter-approved measure, the condemned could be moved off death row and into other prisons and required to work. Now, death penalty proponents accuse Governor Newsom of exploiting that lesser-known section of Prop 66 for political gain. Michael Rushford is president of the conservative criminal justice legal foundation. The governor has taken loopholes and uh, nuances in the law and used them to give criminals, the worst criminals, a break. Is unjust, it's unfair, it's stupid. Some victims' families, too, are outraged. Sandra Friend's eight-year-old son, Michael Lyons, was making his way home from school in Yuba City, California in 1996 when he was abducted and brutalized by serial killer Robert Boyd Rhodes, who dumped the child's body in a riverbed. Friend says she now feels victimized all over again. He tortured Michael for 10 hours. He um, stabbed him 70 to 80 times. And he was eight years old, just a little boy, full of life, full of dreams. To hear this news is devastating. Friend says it's outrageous that killers like Rhodes may, in her words, get rewarded with expanded work options, maybe even a cellmate. For him to be able to leave death row and go into a cushier prison, having maybe possibly a celly, um, having a job, is terrifying because he is the worst of the worst. He is a monster. Permanently emptying California's death row, 650 men at San Quentin and 21 women at a separate facility, is expected to take much of this year. Perhaps the only thing Friend and Farrell agree on is that the process should be methodical and careful, as the Department of Corrections pledges it will be. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, San Francisco. And this is, and this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a large tornado that tore through Selma, Alabama a few hours ago and caused extensive damage. We'll hear about it. And tomorrow, a newly formed nonprofit plans to renovate and reopen the space in Harvard Square, Cambridge, formerly occupied by the American Repertory Theater's Oberon Theater. That story and more tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Start your day right here. A rainy night ahead that should turn strangely warm, about the low 50s 
20s by dawn tomorrow. The wet weather should continue tomorrow morning and should be unseasonable temperatures up around 56 for a high during the day. Cloudy all day tomorrow, pretty windy, gusts of about 40 miles an hour, and then the weekend should be mixed. 41 degrees now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. I just got my whole box of clothes. I was supposed to TikTok is full of influencers posting fashion hauls, unpacking giant boxes of cheap polyester clothing. Okay, it's a little two-piece set. Nothing wrong here, but like boring. What do we think? Is this like cute for like Miami or something? Fashion might be fast, but it's low quality. Would you even recognize a beautifully crafted garment anymore? That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to investigate the discovery of classified documents at President Biden's Delaware home and in his former office. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Garland says the extraordinary circumstances require the move. Special counsel Robert Hur will start work in the coming days. Hur's a former Justice Department official in the Trump administration. He also served as the top federal prosecutor in Maryland. Hur will probe the possible unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or other records at Biden's think tank office and at his Wilmington, Delaware home. In a written statement, Hur promised to exercise fair, impartial, and independent judgment. Another special counsel, Jack Smith, is leading a separate probe of government secrets found at former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Annual inflation eased last month to its lowest level in more than a year. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on a new cost-of-living index from the Labor Department. Consumer prices in December were up 6.5% from a year ago. That's a smaller annual increase than the month before and a significant drop from last summer when inflation hit a four-decade high of just over 9%. The price index actually declined slightly between November and December thanks to a big drop in gasoline prices. President Biden says while inflation's still too high, it's moving in the right direction. It all adds up to a real break for consumers, real breathing room for families, and more proof that my economic plan is working. Inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve are not ready to declare victory just yet. The Fed's expected to boost interest rates again early next month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 216 points. The Nasdaq up 69. S&P 500 up 13. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is criticizing House Republicans who voted to establish a legislative committee to address the U.S. competition with China. One of the goals of the committee is to bring back jobs from China to the U.S. But Presley told CNN today that she thinks it will cause harm to Asian Americans. This is just a committee that would further embolden uh, anti-Asian rhetoric and hate and put lives at risk. We have enough infrastructure and governance uh, to tackle those issues that we don't need the select committee, and that is why I voted no. The U.S. House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed legislation Tuesday to create that committee. Tomorrow, a new memorial to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King opens on the Boston Common. It's a two-story tall bronze sculpture called The Embrace. Here's WBR's Rupa Shinoy. 
The sculpture symbolizes the couple embracing. The kings met in Boston, and the common was the site of their first date. The memorial includes the names of 65 other people who fought for racial equity in Boston. Amari Paris-Jeffries is executive director of the group that oversaw the sculpture's creation and installation. 45% of the leaders acknowledged here are women. There are three people who are indigenous, five folks who identify as Asian, two folks who identify as Jewish, one person who is white who is not identified as Jewish. So it is a, a diverse story of Boston. QR codes around the embrace lead to more information about the struggle for racial equity in Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Plans for a new observatory in Boston's Prudential Tower are coming into focus. They include an open-air deck wrapped around the top of the building. The company managing the redevelopment released details on the design today. It says visitors on the deck will be able to have their picture taken by a high-powered camera perched atop a neighboring skyscraper. More plans for the space include a cocktail lounge and exhibits on Boston's neighborhoods. The new observatory called View Boston will open later this year. And Emerson College is getting a new president. Today, the school named Jay Bernhardt its new leader. He's currently dean of the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. The chair of the Emerson Board of Trustees calls Bernhardt a transformational leader with a record of innovation in communications and the arts. He will succeed interim president William Gilligan. Emerson's previous president, Lee Pelton, left in 2021 to lead the Boston Foundation. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Kind of sloppy commute for the afternoon and evening. Showers should continue overnight tonight and end by noontime tomorrow. Temperatures tonight should start out in the upper 30s, then inch all the way to the mid-50s tomorrow. Breezy and gray pretty much all day tomorrow. Saturday, snow and rain about 40. Sunday, more snow and rain showers, but maybe a few appearances by the sun. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. A large and powerful tornado hit central Alabama this afternoon. It moved across the city of Selma and caused extensive damage from one end of town to the other. Rescue crews are just now getting to some of the hardest hit areas, and they're trying to assess how bad the destruction is. Reporter Kyle Gassett of Troy Public Radio in Selma joins us now. Kyle, tell us exactly where you are and what you're seeing. Well, Juana, I'm in downtown just blocks away from the historic Edmund Pettus Bridge. This was the bridge where protesters marching for voting rights were beaten by Alabama state troopers on a day known as Bloody Sunday in 1965. Now, usually when you drive down the street, you get a sense of this history. And that feeling is still here today, but it's obvious that some of those historic buildings have sustained damage. I'm seeing a lot of downed trees. The police and work crews had to cut power lines so I and others could drive downtown. There is extensive damage to buildings. A metal roof of the building had just been blown across the street, and there are broken windows and debris strewn everywhere. 
and this particular area isn't the hardest hit. I haven't been able to get to other areas yet with all the debris, but the damage is breathtaking. As you mentioned, it's obviously pretty hard to get around in Selma right now, but have you had the opportunity to talk with anyone about what's happened? Yes, I stopped by Edgewood Elementary School, not far from downtown, and I got there just as the last of the kids were getting picked up, and I spoke with Principal Margaret Jones. I asked her how they got the young kids through the tornado, how they tried to keep them calm, and this is what she said. We did lots of hugs. I even gave out some kisses today. Um, And we were just holding and hugging and comforting and talking through this experience because we practice our weather drills all the time. However, we've never had to use the protocol like we've had to use it today. Joan said some of the parents came to school to try and get their kids before the tornado hit. And they ended up sheltering these parents with the kids at school. She said all the kids are okay. In fact, the Selma superintendent of schools tweeted that all the kids who were in class in the district came through the tornado okay. And it's worth pointing out that back in 2007, a tornado hit Enterprise High School about two hours from here. It killed nine people and injured at least eight others. So many school districts in Alabama learned from what happened then, and they often dismiss classes early or cancel them altogether. And certainly some good news there. So the storm system, it was well forecast and meteorologists had warned of the possibility of tornadoes today. Did the intensity of these storms just catch officials off guard? Yeah, yeah, Juana. Some of the TV forecasters say the system that moved across Alabama, quote, overperformed. And you could hear them discuss that as part of their live coverage. I heard one weather forecaster saying, wow, a lot this afternoon and using words like nasty to describe the storm. One forecaster said the tornado was staying down like Elmer's glue had stuck it to the ground. And it's clear they just weren't expecting a tornado this big. It was estimated to be a mile wide and was on the ground for a long time. You know, usually in January, if there are tornadoes, they tend to be smaller and weaker and short-lived. But we'll get a clearer sense in the coming days how strong this tornado was once the National Weather Service is able to get out and do its analysis. This is one of the best reasons that forecasters say you should always prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Indeed. Before I let you go very quickly, the community there, how is it holding up? Well, today I saw city officials crossing guards and will look to be civilians directing traffic and getting people the help they need. If that's any indication, I would say the community is pulling together even as they still assess the damage and determine just what happened. That is Kyle Gassett of Troy Public Radio joining us from Selma, Alabama. Kyle, thank you so much. Thank you, Juana. Scientists from ExxonMobil accurately predicted that burning fossil fuels would lead to the global warming that the world is now experiencing. That's according to a new study in the journal Science. But despite having very good information, Exxon funded a decades-long campaign to cast doubt on human-driven climate change. Jeff Brady from our Climate Desk is here to tell us more. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mary Louise. So I believe I'm correct in saying we have heard some of this before, that ExxonMobil knew that burning fossil fuels would worsen climate change. What exactly is new now? Yeah, the difference is it's clear ExxonMobil was working with some really good information about climate change. Uh, For the first time, researchers at Harvard University and Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research analyzed ExxonMobil's global warming predictions from 1977 through 2003. Then they compared that to what what's actually happened. And the two line up very closely. Uh, Jeffrey Supran is the lead researcher. He's now a, a professor at the University of Miami. Specifically, what we've done is to actually put a number for the first time on what Exxon knew. 
which is that the burning of their fossil fuel products would heat the planet by something like 0.2 Celsius uh, every single decade. And that's pretty much what happened. Uh, Superman says the information ExxonMobil had was as good, or in some cases even better, than what independent scientists and governments were predicting. Still, the company spent decades casting doubt on climate science, and that helped delay action on climate change. Hmm. ExxonMobil has defended itself vigorously, Hmm. I think it's fair to say, from claims like this in the past. What is the company saying about this new study? ExxonMobil says this research is right in line with what it's heard in the past and says that the conclusion that Exxon knew about climate change and did nothing is wrong. Exxon says its uh, understanding of climate change developed right alongside the broader scientific community. Uh, A spokesman explained in a statement that critics are looking at the company's internal policy debates and recasting them as a disinformation campaign. Uh, But the company says it's committed to being part of the solution to climate change and the risks it poses. Jeff, let me turn you to a legal question. Lawsuits have been filed against companies like ExxonMobil for damages related to global warming. Do we know how this new research might affect those cases? Yeah, this evidence adds research or adds evidence. Well, this this research adds evidence to the more than 20 states and local governments bringing those damage cases. We're also seeing a new round of racketeering lawsuits, one recently from Puerto Rico communities. Uh, that they Those claim that fossil fuel companies, industry groups, and others all conspired to mislead the public about the effects of their products. And law professor Karen Sokol says, considering all that litigation, this research is compelling. She says ExxonMobil had a duty to share what it knew with the public and policymakers because, you know, that's how science works. Imagine that world and the different trajectory that consumers, investors, and policymakers would have taken when we still had time um, versus now when we're entrenched in a fossil fuel-based economy that's getting increasingly expensive and difficult to exit. She says this new research provides significant evidence of the kind of deception and law-breaking that many of the lawsuits allege. And Jeff, just give us a quick overview of what the status of these lawsuits is now. Yeah, the cases are slowly making their way through the courts. State and local governments are filing new cases. But, you know, this is big, complicated litigation. It's often compared to those tobacco lawsuits a generation ago. Um, it's, it's been slowed down a little bit by questions about things like where the court cases should be heard. Uh, but we're going to be hearing about these cases for years to come. Jeff Brady of NPR's Climate Desk, thank you. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. More than 4,000 migrants who recently crossed into the U.S. from Mexico have arrived in Denver over the last month. It's prompted the city to declare a state of emergency. It converted two city recreation centers into temporary shelters. Denver's mayor now wants to close those shelters, but it is not clear where the migrants can go. Colorado Public Radio's Kevin Beatty reports. Denver City employee Lisa Gibbs is in charge of this shelter in West Denver. It's busy. 
we'll get walk-ups all day. We are close to capacity today. Denver started converting rec centers and another city building to temporary spaces for migrants when Denver's regular homeless shelters became inundated in December. Gibbs and her colleagues stepped away from the regular city jobs and have been pulling 12-hour shifts. People like Kevin, who's from Venezuela, are appreciative. He declined to say his last name, worrying identifying himself could compromise his asylum claim. I feel safe thanks to the support of the people who are having us here, he says. I arrived here without clothes, with nothing, and here they've given me clothes, food, where to stay when I go to my destination. I'm barely 22 years old, and I want to get my papers out and do things perfectly, if God allows me. City employees are really proud to give people a soft landing here, but it's cost Denver more than a million dollars so far. Mayor Michael Hancock has been pleading with nonprofit and faith organizations to help. He expects migrants will keep coming for months. Last week, the state tried to solve Denver's problem by chartering buses to take migrants where they want to go out of state. Selena Reyes has been helping book those trips. I would say that the majority of our guests are traveling outside of Denver, uh, New York, Chicago, and Florida, as of right now. Officials won't say how many buses they chartered, but on Saturday, New York Mayor Eric Adams and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot sent a joint letter respectfully demanding they stop. Jared Polis, Colorado's Democratic governor, stopped chartering buses in response, but said, quote, we will not prevent anyone who wants to leave from going to their preferred destination, and migrants are still being offered tickets out of state on regular commercial buses. Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock says he gets it. I probably would have responded exactly how Mayor Lightfoot responded. We're just not equipped for this sort of thing. And, and it's a result of the inactivity and, and lack of leadership by the federal government. Hancock says Denver's rec centers need to go back to being rec centers and not migrant shelters. He's hopeful the new policy President Biden announced last week will help. It aims to reduce migrant numbers by quickly expelling migrants from Nicaragua, Cuba and Haiti who enter the U.S. via Mexico. The administration is showing leadership and, and recognizing the undue burden on cities and states with the, uh, this, the surge that has occurred here. Trabajo es work. Back in the shelter, a city employee helps people with some basic English. Many people here made a dangerous trek from Venezuela to escape violence and poverty. They're trying to find a better life. Emilia Herrieta has heard a lot of their stories. People are not just making this decision because it seems like something to do, right? It's a life or death situation for a lot of people. She said word has spread that Denver is a welcoming place to land, even if just for a little while. We've seen a lot of people here who are who are telling us things like, oh, I texted my cousin, or I'm part of a WhatsApp group that told me to come here, and the word is getting out that Denver seems to be the place that people are now coming. Migrant arrivals in the city have dropped by about half from 200 or more a day, but the city is still sheltering more than 1,000 a night, and no one knows how long the surge that started last month will continue. Denver is negotiating with the local Catholic Archdiocese to shelter migrants so its rec centers can go back to hosting workouts and basketball games. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Beatty in Denver. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the upper country exploring the Underground Railroad's little-known history in one community of free black people in Canada. Celtics will play their third game in four nights tonight. They're out in Brooklyn to take on the Nets in a game that's nationally televised. Bruins are also in action tonight. They're hosting the Seattle Kraken at the Garden at 7 o'clock. 
Today, the Red Sox officially made Corey Kluber part of the team. They signed the two-time Cy Young Award winner to a one-year deal reportedly worth $10 million, with a club option for an additional year at $11 million. Kluber's family has a home in Winchester. The Sox have also agreed to a one-year contract with Southpaw Josh Taylor. This is 90.9 WBUR, 41 degrees now in Boston at 549. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, a daily farm market featuring local produce and groceries with homegrown and homemade prepared foods. VolanteFarms.com. There's one thing that you can't leave out of this discussion, which is the physical environment that's been built by people in California for decades and even centuries, which is actually contributing to this. That system has actually made California even more vulnerable to the kind of flooding that we're seeing now and made the problem even worse than it would have been otherwise. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. When the author Kai Thomas was researching his first novel, he came across a black and white photo from the mid-1800s. I was struck by... The image, photography was just being invented and black folks for the first time in history were able to represent themselves in that way. It was a portrait of a man named John Daddy Hall. Thomas began learning everything he could about him. So he had fought in the War of 1812 for the indigenous leader Tecumseh and he was captured during that war and enslaved for many years and escaped and was one of the founding members of a community that was at the terminus of the Underground Railroad and was the town crier of that community and purportedly lived to be 115 years old. Are you kidding? In the 1800s, he lived to be 115? That's like biblical. Yeah, exactly. It has that (laughs) sense to it. As he dug deeper, Kai Thomas found a name on a census record for one of John Daddy Hall's daughters, Lucinda. There were no details about her, and that set his imagination running. I wonder what she would have sounded like and what she would have been interested in. And the curiosity that I held around what her experience would have been propelled the thrust of the novel. That novel is called In the Upper Country. The character named Lucinda and another woman spend most of the book swapping stories. They are in a place we don't often hear about in histories of the Underground Railroad, a Canadian community of free black people. Growing up in Canada, Kai Thomas was familiar with the history of such places. It was certainly, you know, one of the narratives that I was brought up on as a kind of defining moment in Canada's history. It's something Mm -hmm. that we celebrate and recognize. And, you know, there are these communities such as, you know, Buxton, Ontario, which survives and has this vibrant Emancipation Day festival. But by and large, a lot of these communities actually dissipated after emancipation in the U.S. So people went back down south into the United States. Many did, yeah. Many did. And, And some of these communities in Canada were destroyed due to racist violence and discrimination and de facto segregation that was encountered there. So there's this other kind of chapter to 
this period of history in Canada that I'm trying to shed light on. One of those themes is the relationship between Black and Indigenous people, which is not something we hear a lot about as we study this history. We hear about the relationship between Black and white people, between white people and Native communities. Tell me about what you wanted to explore in looking at these connections between Black and Indigenous folks. Yeah, I mean, when I started to look at the history and, and, and do research, I found plenty of examples of political alliances, relationships, encounters that I hadn't ever seen represented in literature. And not to say that it's never been done, but it's very rare. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. The two communities tend to think of ourselves as inherently different and and separated and not really having this shared history. And I just thought it was so important to bring that to, to life in this book. One of the things that comes across in the novel that might be obvious, but when you look at the relationship between Black and Indigenous communities, it's complicated. There are alliances and marriages and also betrayals and conflicts. There's no one story of how these two groups of people interacted. That is certainly true. I think, you know, from a modern perspective, I feel and felt during the writing of the book a lot of compulsion to romanticize that historical relationship Mm. because it's an easy route to take. And I think the history of the encounter between any peoples or races is, is always complex and is always fraught with power and privilege and political decisions. And so it was a process of trying to be realistic. Because this work of fiction is grounded in historical research, there were lots of moments as I was reading it that I thought, wait, is that real? And one of them comes in a story that takes us into an entire underground village built into the earth. Will you read a portion of the book where you describe this sort of underground community? You you write that their dwellings are impossible to find for the village, it is said, is below the earth itself. We were ushered through to a cavern wherein we could see the moonlight from a crack in the ceiling, and it shone on the center of a large pool of slowly flowing water. There we bathed. The water was fresh and sweet, and the cavern was peaceful with its soft sound and its enclosure, and I was overcome by a powerful sense of relief. Was this based on a real historical place, or did that just come from your imagination? That is a real... I mean, I my imagination certainly gave it character and vibrancy and details that I can't attest to from a historical point of view, but that is a real phenomenon, especially in the Chesapeake Bay area and huh. further inland in Virginia and North Carolina. And there's increasingly a lot of archaeological evidence to support the maroon communities that emerged in those areas. Maroon communities, did you say? Maroon communities, maroon referring to the position of being a a self-emancipated, formerly enslaved person. And why did they build these underground cities? Well, underground in swamps, in places that were unaccessible and easy to remain hidden Mm. in. So it was about safety and avoiding detection. Definitely about safety, about, you know, building a community that is not interested in being noticed and is on the contrary based on the idea of subverting the standing power structures. Mm. 
So over the course of the book, many threads are woven together, including familial threads. And I thought about the fact that those who are descended from enslaved people today often cannot trace their family history back past a certain point because that knowledge was deliberately stamped out. And so what did it mean for you as a writer imagining the past to weave some of these threads together in fiction that perhaps in real life might have been snipped? For me, that was one of the interesting possibilities of fiction. I think in real life, you may have experiences or some people may have those encounters that bring everything together. But for most of us, when we or our families or our ancestors have suffered a profound disruption into our stories, we don't get that back, right? And I think fiction is just really exciting place to imagine what it would be to heal those ruptures. Hmm. And that's part of, you know, what drew me to to writing was a way to to really go there in a creative sense. Kai Thomas, his debut novel is In the Upper Country. Thanks so much for talking with us about it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. This is NPR. Should be wet and windy overnight tonight as showers continue off and on. Temperatures actually hiking overnight could break 50 degrees by 5 a.m. By the afternoon tomorrow, we could be in the mid-50s. The day starts up with showers and ends with clouds. And then for the holiday weekend, a little sloppy on Saturday, snow and rain showers. Temperatures in the upper 30s. Then Sunday, a modest amount of sun, mostly rain and snow showers. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's Heroic Symphony. January 20th and 22nd at Symphony Hall. HandlinHyden.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice thinks the way forward for the war in Ukraine is through more weapons and more money funneled to Ukraine's forces trying to kick Russia out of the country. Russia invaded Ukraine almost one year ago. Condoleezza Rice coming up on this Thursday, January 12th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, more classified documents have been found from President Biden's tenure as vice president. Biden says he's cooperating with the Justice Department, but the White House is tight-lipped. As the president told you, as my colleagues have said to many of you, we are committed to doing the right thing, and we will provide further details uh, when it's appropriate. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says New York Congressman George Santos will remain in office despite the Republicans' deceptions prior to the election. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Justice Department is appointing a special counsel to further investigate Two batches of classified documents have been found in possession of President Biden. More from NPR's Windsor Johnston. Attorney General Merrick Garland says he's appointing Robert Hur, a veteran prosecutor who worked in the Trump administration, to investigate how the classified documents from Biden's time as vice president ended up at his home and private office. This appointment underscores for the public the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters, and to making decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. President Biden has pledged his full cooperation with the Justice Department's review. The White House has not addressed questions as to why the initial discovery was not disclosed back in November, just before the election. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Congress will need to raise the nation's borrowing authority before the Treasury Department hits its credit limit later this year. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports on how this inevitable partisan ritual is taking shape on Capitol Hill. As part of his negotiations with GOP hardliners last week, Kevin McCarthy pledged the House would not vote to raise the debt ceiling without spending cuts. At his first regular press conference as Speaker, McCarthy said he's discussing the matter with President Biden. He pointed to the deal that President Trump cut with Democrats in 2019 to increase borrowing authority in exchange for caps on federal spending. When Nancy Pelosi was speaker, that's what transpired. Um, To get a debt ceiling, they also got a cap on spending for the next two years. If Congress is unable to agree on how to increase the debt limit, the nation's credit rating could be downgraded. This will likely come to a head by the middle of next year. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. The GOP-controlled House has voted to block oil from the country's emergency stockpiles from flowing to China. Republicans say the bill would help end what they call President Biden's abuse of our strategic reserves. New consumer inflation data was in line with what Wall Street Street expected, and stocks ended higher. Here's NPR's David Gura. When it comes to high inflation, the trends are pointing in the right direction. The consumer price index declined slightly from November to December by 0.1%. And even though CPI was 6.5% higher on a year-over-year basis, that's lower than in previous months. Now, 6.5% is still a ways away from what the Federal Reserve wants to see, but it's another sign high inflation is easing. The Fed is expected to raise interest rates again at its next meeting at the end of the month. On Wall Street, shares of Disney traded more than 3% higher after the company announced a shakeup of its board of directors under pressure from an activist investor. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a new leader at the state-run Chelsea Soldiers Home. Governor Maura Healy today fired Superintendent Eric Johnson and replaced him with an acting superintendent, Robert Engel. Johnson was appointed during the Baker administration to run the nursing facility for military veterans. This move follows a Boston Globe report that highlighted $87,000 in overtime and other pay to the home's director of nursing last year. The state inspector general last week also reported poor living conditions and a poor work environment at the facility. The Peabody Essex Museum in Salem is returning a trove of historic records from the Salem Witch Trials to Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. WBR's Andrea Shea has more. The Salem Museum has been safeguarding 527 witch trials documents since 1980. Now director and CEO Linda Roscoe Hardigan says they're going back to the state's high court, the SJC, and they'll be preserved in newly updated judicial archives. We've also digitized everything which means that we will still, through our library, the Phillips Library, be able to provide digital access to the witch trial papers, as will the SJC. The SJC was founded after more than 200 people were accused of witchcraft in the 1690s. 25 were executed or died because of the hysteria. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. The city of Boston's creating a new office to support young people. Mayor Michelle Wu made the announcement this morning at a community center in the South End. This new Office of Youth Engagement and Advancement, also known as Oh Yeah, will recognize the essential role of our young people in our city's success today and into the future. Mayor Wu says the office will help coordinate activities for kids and conduct what the mayor says will be the first ever survey of young people in Boston about the challenges they're facing. One of the most influential editors in the world of fiction has died. Michael Curtis worked at The Atlantic for nearly six decades. He edited literary luminaries including John Updike, Joyce Carol Oates, and Raymond Carver, and he helped launch the careers of many major authors. Curtis was known for sending a personal note to the many writers whose submissions he'd turned down. He offered them critiques and encouragement. Mike Curtis lived in the Boston area for decades before he and his wife moved to South Carolina. He died yesterday at 88. A damp commute this evening. Showers should continue overnight tonight and end by noon tomorrow. Temperatures tonight should start out in the upper 30s, then inch all the way up to the mid-50s tomorrow. Breezy and gray all day tomorrow. Saturday, snow and rain showers highs about 40. Sunday, more snow and rain. Maybe a few appearances by the sun, still right around 40. This is WBUR. It is 41 degrees now at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to investigate President Biden's handling of classified documents. The documents are from the time that he was serving as vice president, and a small number of them were recently found in one of his offices and at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. But under the regulations, the extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter. 
This is the second special counsel Garland has appointed to look at the handling of these kinds of documents. The first is investigating former President Donald Trump for his activities around January 6th, and also because hundreds of classified documents were found in Trump's home in Florida. White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins me now. Tam, why did Merrick Garland say that a special counsel was needed here? Some of the documents were first discovered in early November, and by the middle of that month, Garland had already asked a prosecutor to conduct an initial investigation. He said today that that prosecutor ultimately told him that he thought a special counsel was warranted. The special counsel operates independently of day-to-day oversight from the Justice Department, and part of the goal with that special counsel law is to avoid even the appearance of interference. Um, And given that President Biden is the president and he's likely running for re-election. This is exactly the kind of case the special counsel is designed for. Uh, The newly appointed special counsel is named Robert Herr, a career prosecutor who was appointed to his two most recent positions by former President Trump. And he said he will investigate fairly and quickly. Now, Attorney General Garland has laid out a very detailed timeline of how this whole investigation has unfolded thus far. What did you learn from that and how does it compare to what you've heard from the White House? I think the best way to describe the way the White House has been sharing information about this issue is incomplete. Biden on Tuesday talked about documents that were found in an office maintained in Washington, D.C. after he was vice president. But he didn't say anything about additional documents we learned today were found in his home in a a garage in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, Today, Garland said that the bulk of those documents were actually found on December 20th. um, And one last one was turned over this morning. The White House has not explained why there was such a big, big gap in the public disclosure of the situation. And what about the president himself? What has he had to say about this? Well, he spoke to reporters this morning before Garland's announcement, and he did answer a question about the additional documents that were found. He said he and his team are fully cooperating, and he emphasized uh, that as soon as the documents were found, they were turned over to the National Archives and the Justice Department. And that is in stark contrast to former President Trump, who refused to give back documents. He had his lawyers certify falsely that he didn't have any more. And in fact, he still had hundreds of them, which was revealed through a search warrant. Um, But Biden was also a little bit defensive about the suggestion that he was keeping classified documents next to his Corvette in the garage. My Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. After Garland's announcement, White House counsel Richard Sauber put out a statement saying that they are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents were inadvertently misplaced. Okay, so what happened here sounds quite different from former President Trump's mishandling of classified documents. But, Tam, like always, there is a big political question here. Oh, there is. Uh, It just creates a lot of room for questions. Congressional Republicans are making hay of this and saying that they will investigate Biden's mishandling of classified documents. Um, They will be asking who had access to his garage and the other areas where the documents were stored and and why this was kept from the public until after the midterms. Um, You know, they were already planning to investigate President Biden. Uh, Now they've got another scandal that they can stoke. NPR's Tamara Keith, thank you. You're welcome. Let's consider the case that perhaps the way forward for the war in Ukraine is more, 
More weapons, more money funneled by the U.S. and its allies to Ukraine's forces trying to kick Russia out of their country. Two giants of the national security establishment are making that case. In the Washington Post, the piece by former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates is headlined, Time is Not on Ukraine's Side. And Condoleezza Rice joins us now from her office at Stanford University. Secretary Rice, welcome. Thank you. So make the case in a war that has already caused so many casualties, so much suffering. Why do you believe the way forward is something that that sounds an awful lot like escalation? Well, the uh, escalation of this war is uh, Vladimir Putin's escalation. He continues to use essentially terrorist tactics against the Ukrainian population with the bombing of civilian targets, the infrastructure, the grid. But the fact is, the Ukrainians are fighting, and they're fighting hard, and they're fighting effectively. And we've never done very well when we stood by and waited for the war to come to us. And so our argument, Rob Gates and and my argument, is simply let's have a sense of urgency about getting everything to the Ukrainians that they need to fight this war on the behalf of people who believe that the international system cannot allow an aggressor to win who simply intended to extinguish its smaller neighbor. Why not, the basic question, but why not try to negotiate a ceasefire? Why isn't that the path forward? Well, first of all, uh, that's going to have to be, and the Biden administration has been absolutely right about this, that's going to have to be a Ukrainian decision. After all that they've suffered, after the war crimes that have been committed, after the destruction of their country, to tell them now, negotiate now, I think would not be morally uh, acceptable. Uh, There will eventually be a ceasefire and a negotiation. Our job as Ukraine's uh, partner in this is to simply help them be in the very best position possible when that negotiation takes place. And that, unfortunately, is not right now. Vladimir Putin, and we're seeing uh, what is going on around Flaret, what the Russians seem to be intent on doing is trying to at least secure uh, territory in uh, Donetsk, uh, maybe in Luhansk. Because Putin set off, he he cut off his own off-ramp, Mary Louise, when he uh, decided to annex that territory, when he decided to call it Russia, uh, he now will not negotiate what he has called Russian territory. And so we have to be prepared for the fact that this will probably go on. It may go on for some time. But we have to leave the Ukrainians or help them to leave themselves in the best possible position when uh, those negotiations take place. And that means not now. Is it possible, Secretary Rice, for the U.S. and our NATO allies to do what you're calling for, to dramatically and quickly increase military aid without provoking a direct confrontation with Russia? Well, the way to not have a direct confrontation with Russia is to make sure that Russia uh, is deterred from perhaps uh, expanding this war into places where we have an Article 5 commitment like Poland. Uh, The way to avoid uh, escalation with Russia is to show Vladimir Putin that he cannot win on the aggression that he has carried out. And we're not talking here about uh, giving the Ukrainians uh, the means to to march to Moscow. We're talking about the means to uh, protect, defend, and in fact, take back uh, some of the territory that the Russians have illegally uh, seized and decided to make Russia. A lot of this has been already uh, authorized. Uh, the, the money has been authorized. What we're really arguing for is let's try to anticipate, let's be 
very urgent about getting them what they need. And let's remember that uh, they're fighting uh, the fight of those who believe in a rule of law in international politics. Does the caution recently voiced by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, by General Milley, give you pause? This is the highest ranking military officer in the U.S. He says he does not see a full military victory for Ukraine coming anytime soon. Should the U.S. really be pushing more weapons with urgency into a conflict that he doesn't see uh, Ukraine winning soon? Well, with all due respect to uh, our leaders, we also uh, thought at one point that Kiev was going to fall in five days. So I think it's probably not wise to predict what the Ukrainians can achieve. Uh, and our goal has to be to give them as much as they possibly need to achieve as much as they possibly can. And I think if you'd asked our leaders, our intelligence folks, uh, at the beginning of this in February 24th, would we be sitting here almost a year later saying the Russians have achieved essentially none of their strategic goals? People would have thought that unlikely. Another challenge is one that you anticipated in your piece. You wrote, quote, increasingly members of Congress and others in our public discourse, in our American public discourse, ask, why should we care? This is not our fight. Secretary Rice, what is your answer? My answer is that we want an international system, a world order, in which countries don't have the right, just because they're bigger, to extinguish their smaller neighbors. That has implications for uh, China and Taiwan. That has implications across the globe. And uh, we just never done very well when we assumed that uh, either it would these these uh, struggles would go away, or we would be kept out of them. We did think that in 1914. We did think that in 1941 until Pearl Harbor. We did think that until 2001 when it came to our own shores. And so, yes, it's a heavy burden, uh, but we are the only power that shares the values and the interests of an international system that protects freedom, that protects the weaker from the stronger. And uh, we are not this time being asked to spill American blood to do that. We're simply being asked to give the Ukrainians the tools. They're more than willing, we can see, to make this their fight, to tell them we'll leave them to the tender mercies of the Russians because we can't spend the money to get military equipment to them. I think that would be an abdication of who we are, what we've been, and by the way, an abdication of the possibility of defending ourselves. Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State from 2005 to 2009. Secretary Rice, thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight on Marketplace, we check in with a co-owner of Dean Suites in Portland, Maine, to find out how the cost of business is changing. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. 
Stocks closed higher across the board. The Dow rose more than six-tenths of 1%, 217 points, to close at 34,190. S&P picked up about a third of a percent to close at 39.83. The Nasdaq notched its fifth day of gains, up more than six-tenths of a percent, to close at 11,001. The price of home heating oil has dropped slightly in Massachusetts. The latest Department of Energy Resources survey shows the average price at $4.56 a gallon. That's down 13 cents a gallon from last week. Business news on Marketplace starts in about 10 minutes. It's 6:19. We're funded by you our listeners and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org/cars. Have a rainy night that should turn strangely warm. The low 50s by dawn tomorrow. Wet weather should continue into tomorrow morning and should be unseasonably warm. About 56 for a high by the afternoon. Cloudy all day long, pretty windy as well. The weekend could be mixed. Saturday, gray skies, chance of light snow or rain, about 40 for a high. Sunday may have rain or snow showers and possibly a little bit of sunshine making cameo appearances. Weekend highs in the upper 30s. 41 degrees now in Boston. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For a second straight year, enrollment in ACA, Affordable Care Act, marketplaces set a record. Nearly 16 million people have enrolled, and in most places, people can still sign up till Sunday. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin explains why these health insurance plans got more popular. First of all, the plans are cheaper for people than they used to be. The government has pumped billions of dollars into subsidies to keep costs down for consumers. Another reason why more people are signing up? There's more help. This year, we really caught our stride. That's Katie Rodgers-Turner. She runs the Family Healthcare Foundation, which is part of the Tampa Bay Navigator Project in Florida. Navigators help people understand their options, decide on a plan, and get signed up for it all for free. They're paid through government grants. The Trump administration slashed funding for navigators. The Biden administration shored it up. The Tampa Bay Navigator Project went from having a team of 16 navigators to this year having 35. So we've been really able to spread out the need and the demand amongst those navigators. One of the people her organization helped recently was Erin Dimmig. She and her husband Tyler are 30 years old. They live in Plant City, Florida. And right now she is, as she puts it, very pregnant. She's due with her first child in February. My husband got a new job offer and that puts him in a 90-day insurance gap. And we were doing 60 days. They couldn't afford to keep paying for the insurance he'd had through his old job. COBRA was going to cost them $1,600 a month, and that plan had been expensive for them anyway. She Googled her way to healthcare.gov, the federal insurance marketplace, which Florida and lots of other states use, and she started to answer questions like size of household, income. Once you click the You're Pregnant button, it asks you all sorts of confusing questions, and I was absolutely in over my head. So I, like, went to the Find Help place. Localhelp.healthcare.gov has a directory to find navigators in your area. Erin found a local community center on the list and called them. I called, and they were like, well, George comes in on Thursday. 
So the Dimmigs went to see George Masson. She was so stressed she would be uninsured when she went into labor. But then he found me the plan and then he told me all of the things and I realized how much money it was going to save us. I cried in this office. I cried when we found out that we were going to be saving a lot of money. She estimates it's going to save them $9,000 compared to their old plan. They're not done with health insurance. After the baby's born, they'll need to add the baby to their plan, decide whether to sign up for her husband's new employer-based plan when he becomes eligible. George said that he would help walk us through that. So she's not worried. Rogers Turner says the Dimmicks aren't alone. People have been really pleased with the cost of the insurance plans and the options that they have. Federal health officials say four out of five enrollees qualify for plans that cost $10 or less per month. And five million people who are uninsured qualify for $0 premium plans. Enrollment is still open on the Federal Health Exchange, healthcare.gov, and in most state marketplaces until Sunday, January 15. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. California this week is moving ahead with efforts to dismantle the largest death row system in America. Under Governor Gavin Newsom, the state on Wednesday began the process of permanently moving condemned inmates, all 671 of them, into the general prison population. NPR's Eric Westervelt has our story, and just as a warning, this piece contains a graphic description of violent crime. Technically, the death penalty still exists in California. Prosecutors can still seek it. But no one's been put to death in the state in 17 years. And in 2019, Governor Newsom, a Democrat, imposed a moratorium on executions, and he closed the death chamber at San Quentin, the decrepit and still heavily used 19th century prison overlooking San Francisco Bay. Not long after, the state launched a pilot program that voluntarily moved 101 condemned inmates off death row. This week, the state moved to make that voluntary depopulation mandatory and permanent. It's in keeping with Newsom's long-held belief, here speaking on the issue last year, that who gets sentenced to death in America has little connection to justice. And that's a hell of a thing. The prospect of you ending up on death row has more to do with your wealth and race than it does your guilt or innocence. Think about that for a second. When we talk about justice, we preach justice, but as a nation, we don't practice it on death row. After a 45-day public comment period, more death row prisoners will soon start to join regular inmates in seven other prisons in the state with maximum security units. No one will be resentenced in the moves, the Corrections Department says. Most will now be able to work in prison as clerks, laundry, or kitchen helpers, with 70% of their pay going to victim restitution. Anti-capital punishment groups are elated that the state with the largest condemned population is, in effect, moving to join the 23 other states that have abolished their death rows. I'm thrilled. Gavin Newsom is doing a very smart thing and a very positive thing. That's actor Mike Farrell, who chairs the group Death Penalty Focus. Farrell calls capital punishment unjust, barbaric, and biased against people of color. While he supports the move, he notes that many death row inmates face serious psychological hurdles. It's going to be very difficult. There are many people on death row with serious mental issues, and many of them have been in uh, solitary for decades. I think it's a very good move on his part. I just think that it has to be done extraordinarily carefully and very humanely. 
In recent years, governors in Pennsylvania and Oregon have also imposed moratoriums on the death penalty. In part, California's reforms grew out of passage of 2016's Prop 66, which promised to speed up the time between a death sentence and an execution. As part of that voter-approved measure, the condemned could be moved off death row and into other prisons and required to work. Now, death penalty proponents accuse Governor Newsom of exploiting that lesser-known section of Prop 66 for political gain. Michael Rushford is president of the Conservative Criminal Justice Legal Foundation. The governor has taken loopholes and uh, nuances in the law and used them to give criminals, the worst criminals, a break. Is unjust, it's unfair, it's stupid. Some victims' families, too, are outraged. Sandra Friend's eight-year-old son, Michael Lyons, was making his way home from school in Yuba City, California in 1996 when he was abducted and brutalized by serial killer Robert Boyd Rhodes, who dumped the child's body in a riverbed. Friend says she now feels victimized all over again. He tortured Michael for 10 hours. He um, stabbed him 70 to 80 times. And he was eight years old, just a little boy, full of life, full of dreams. To hear this news is devastating. Friend says it's outrageous that killers like Rhodes may, in her words, get rewarded with expanded work options, maybe even a cellmate. For him to be able to leave death row and go into a cushier prison, having maybe possibly a celly, um, having a job, is terrifying because he is the worst of the worst. He is a monster. Permanently emptying California's death row, 650 men at San Quentin and 21 women at a separate facility, is expected to take much of this year. Perhaps the only thing Friend and Farrell agree on is that the process should be methodical and careful, as the Department of Corrections pledges it will be. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, San Francisco. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, Celtics will play their third game in four nights tonight. They're out in Brooklyn to take on the Nets in a game that will be nationally televised. Bruins are also in action tonight. They host the Seattle Kraken at the Garden, 7 o'clock matchup. And Patriots linebacker coach Gerard Mayo is being courted for possible head coaching jobs. Multiple media reports today say the Carolina Panthers want to interview him. Earlier this week, the Cleveland Browns wanted to chat. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean, and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu slash team. And Sony Pictures Classics presenting Living a new film starring Bill Nye as a man who tries to turn his ordinary life into something wonderful, now playing in theaters. 